All right, I want to be able to share with you from the Word of God some of the things that we have been discussing in this series, Bad Company Corrupts Good Morals. And I want you to know that I appreciate the opportunity to hear from so many of you last Sunday about the message itself and the responsibility of the Christian to penetrate his culture. And in this particular series, we've begun to ask the question, what is the Christian's responsibility to his or her culture? You remember last Sunday, I told you that there were five general approaches that Christians have taken through the years to impact their culture, or at least to understand their culture. And if you remember, I gave you those five. One, Christ against culture. Secondly, Christ of culture. Thirdly, Christ above culture. Number four, Christ and culture in paradox. And then fifthly and last, Christ transforming the culture. And if you are like me, when we ended our time last Lord's Day, we sort of hit an impasse, at least in terms of our thinking, and that is, how do we choose from among one of those five or any combination of those as to the exact and precise way for a Christian to impact his culture? It's a very, very difficult question. There's a dilemma in many ways about the precise answer to that very crucial question. And I don't propose that I have all of the answers. I don't even propose that I have many of the right answers. I know that the Word of God has a perspective on many of these things, and I want to share that perspective with you as best I can. But nevertheless, there is difficulty in hitting at the precise areas of how a Christian can rightly, can best apply the principles of God's Word in ministering to the culture, of course, without being so influenced negatively by that culture and its worldliness. In fact, just this week, I was handed by one of you a statement, a poem, really, by John Fisher in his book, Real Christians Don't Dance, in which there was a poem that I think really hits at the very issues that we're talking about. Listen to this poem. It's entitled, The Ins and Outs of It. In it, not of it. Of course, that means the world. In it, not of it, the statement was made, as Christian one faced the world much afraid. In it, not of it, the call was made clear, but Christian one got something stuck in his ear. Not in it or of it was the thing that he heard, and knowing the world was painfully absurd, he welcomed the safety of pious retreat and went to the potluck for something to eat. Now, Christian, too, he knew what to do. He'd show some fundies a thing or two. How will the world ever give Christ a try if we don't get in there and identify? So in it and of it, he said in his car as he pulled in and stopped at a popular bar. I'll tell him the truth as soon as I'm able to get myself out from under this table. Now along comes Christian 3, jogging for Jesus in witnessing sweats made of four matching pieces. His earphones are playing a hot Christian tune about how the Lord is coming back soon. Not in it, but of it, he turns down the hill and stops in for a bite at the agape grill. Like the gold on the chain of his God's love you bracelet, 
He can have the world without having to face it. While way up in heaven, they lament those conditions that come from changing a few prepositions. Not in it or of it, Christian one thought, but who in the world will know that he's not? In it and of it, thought Christian two, but who in the world would know that he knew? Not in it, but of it, thought Christian three, but who in the world watches Christian TV? And Jesus turns to Gabriel, shaking his head, in it, not of it, wasn't that what I said? There are so many people who struggle, including myself, with exactly what category of Christian to be in. In fact, just this week, I picked up a book off my shelf, and it's entitled very provocatively, a great book, maybe even the best book for you to read on this provocative subject. It's by Kenneth Myers, who used to do a national public radio program, and it's titled All God's Children and Blue Suede Shoes. And it's a very, very provocative and interesting book. And he starts out by saying, let's begin by establishing your pop culture quotient, PCQ. First, how many entertainment appliances are in your house? Count all the radios, televisions, VCRs, video cameras, cable TV descrambler boxes, television antenna controllers, CD players, cassette decks, boom boxes, turntables, graphic equalizers, receivers, and computer game units. Unless you find some very str strange things amusing, don't include microwave ovens or blenders. If you're of a certain age, you may have a lava lamp in the attic. Count that too. If it's still in your living room, count it twice. <laughs> now count up the number of magazines you've subscribed to or read regularly, excluding academic journals founded before 1958 and denominational publications. Count People Magazine, Us, Self, and all supermarket tabloids twice. Count TV Guide three times if you actually read it. Count Sports Illustrated four times if you ordered it just to get the swimsuit issue. Also, talk to your pastor. <laughs> if you get Sports Illustrated and throw away the swimsuit issue without reading it, subtract three from your total. Count Spy Magazine twice if you laugh at it, three times if you read it regularly and don't laugh at all. Subtract three if you live within 300 miles of New York City and you've never heard of Spy Magazine. Finally, calculate how many books you've read in the last 90 days that were romance novels, detective novels, horror novels, thrillers, westerns, or any bestseller not by Alan Bloom or Stephen Hawking. Now add up the total for all three categories. Note that the PCQ does not attempt to calculate how much your life is actually influenced by the popular culture around you, but simply how many conduits of popular culture to which you are connected. If you scored less than 10, your life is semi-monastic, and you won't really enjoy or need to read this book. If you scored between 10 and 20, you probably have an average level of contact with popular culture, which means a much higher level than your parents and their parents had. If you scored between 20 and 35, you probably have a high susceptibility to terminal trendiness and chronic couch potatoism and ought to have your cholesterol level checked. If your score was over 35, you should consider checking in to the Faith Popcorn Clinic for the severely over-acculturated or a similar institution. Obviously, what he's saying by way of humor is all of us in some way or another are so influenced by the culture around us. 
whether we want to admit it, whether or not we regard the influences that we do have from the culture as very, very detrimental to us or not, all of us are influenced in many, many ways about the people and the scene around us. And I guess I asked the question as I did last Sunday morning, how do we understand, how are we going to ever hope to understand all of these things? This is one of the most complex issues that Christians will have to face. And one of the most predominant difficulties facing these questions is the subtlety of it all, the subtlety of being influenced by our culture, especially when you assume you're the one doing the influencing and not the other way around. Ken Myers, in that same book, says it might seem an extreme assertion at first, but I believe that the challenge of living with popular culture may well be as serious for modern Christians as persecution and plagues were for the saints of earlier centuries. Being thrown to the lions or living in the shadow of gruesome death are fairly straightforward, if unattractive, threats. Enemies that come loudly and visibly are usually much easier to fight than those that are undetectable. Physical affliction, even to the point of death, for the sake of Christ is a heavy cross, but at least it can be readily recognized at the time of a trial of faith. But the erosion of character, the spoiling of innocent pleasures, and the cheapening of life itself that often accompany modern popular culture can occur so subtly that we believe nothing has happened. Isn't that true? It's like the illustration of the frog in the kettle. He's swimming in that kettle, not knowing that the heat is being progressively turned up until he boils to death because he doesn't realize that he needs to jump out. And that's our culture. We are so in it that we don't understand at times how much we are of it. And our culture continues to tell us that all is well. And sometimes we listen. So what's the answer? I left you hanging last Sunday, didn't I? Which particular one do you think would be the best to choose? Well, personally, I don't think any of them are the best to choose, and even though I believe there's truth in each one of them, I want to come up with my own category, and my own category is this, Christ with culture in biblical tension. Christ with culture in biblical tension. What do I mean by that? How do I assess how I, as a Christian, are to involve myself in the society around me? Well, it might be what a theologian many years ago, Dr. George uh, Ladd, George Eldon Ladd of Fuller Seminary, he's dead now, but he gave a theological category that I think is very true. And he gave it in a very, very easy way to remember and to think about as you live your Christian life. It's called the already-not-yet tension. Now, what he, mean, what he means by that is this, that we are, are already converted. We're already Christians. We're already citizens of heaven. We're already on our way to eternal life, a future and a beyond. That's already happened. It's true of us. 
But we also live within the tension of our world that we are not yet fully and completely those citizens of heaven that we one day will be. That's the not yet. We live in the tension of our world in the already. That means I've come out of the world. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus Christ. But there is the not yet. I'm not yet perfect. I'm not yet glorified. I'm not yet all that I need to be. I live in biblical tension of the already, but the not yet. Paul's theology says it this way. There is the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is this. It is indicative that I know Jesus Christ. It is the indicative state of being that I am on my way to heaven, that I'm to, to seek and to think of heavenly thoughts. But it is also imperative that I continue to fight against sin. It is also imperative that I say no to the evil in the society around me. So whether it's the indicative imperative or whether it's the already and not yet, I'm in a dilemma. Because even though I love Jesus Christ and even though I want for Jesus Christ and His Lordship to be the preponderance of life itself all over the globe... I also have to deal with my own sinful heart. I also have to deal with the wickedness of the world around me. And if that weren't enough, I also have to deal with Satan and his demons. Now that's a tall order. That's a very difficult thing. I live in the realm of the already. I'm a citizen of heaven. My sins have been forgiven. I'm on my way to a forever future with Jesus Christ face to face where there's no sin, no tears, all kinds of bless, all kinds of bliss, all kinds of life with Christ where there's no sin, no tears, nothing whatsoever. But it hasn't come yet. And I must, until that day come, comes, deal with the issues of life as it hits me here and now. I must deal with my own sinfulness. I must deal with Satan and his hosts as he purports in the world to be the right way when we know the end thereof is death. And I have to deal with issues, sometimes even of other Christians who may have imbibed too much of the popular culture and who are tempting me to do the things that they're doing as well, even those Christians who are compromising. There are all kinds of problems all kinds of issues that I face. I'm in the realm of the not yet. So how do I deal with it? Well, I think the best way to deal with it is to allow myself to be a Christian with my culture, but understand the culture and understand myself to be in biblical tension. To know that all of those issues aren't going to be resolved in this lifetime, but I don't by that become so incredibly discouraged that I give up and retreat that I don't stand against my culture when the need arises, but I also am having the opportunity to stand with my culture when the opportunity arises. Because not everything my culture says or does is automatically and importantly wrong at all, in all occasions. There are very much time where I, with my culture, say no to the societal evils. And there are times when the culture says no to those things as well. You just saw in the Congress of our land where they voted, at least in the House, to say no to human cloning. That was a right decision. That was the best decision to make. And believe you me, not every one of those people who made that decision are Christians, right? But they also made a right decision. 
So there are times when I applaud my culture, that is, I'm with my culture, and when they say something that just happens to be the right thing, I stand with them. But I also stand against them in this biblical tension when they do things or say things that are obviously and patently wrong. And so, living for Jesus Christ means that I'm Christ with culture in biblical tension. Now you say, well, that might be helpful on the front end, but how do I practically live that out? Let me give you three principles. Three principles that I believe Scripture helps us in regard to the answer to this question. I don't believe I'll be able to go through each one of them this morning, and so we'll pick it up next time, but I want to give you at least the first one today. Principle number one. Principle number one. The Christian can engage the culture by following this principle, and here it is. Christians, at least to some degree, and that's an important qualifier, Christians, at least to some degree, must be engaged with the culture if they ever hope to win some out of the culture to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll say it again because it's very important and also because it's long and you need to write that down. Christians, at least to some degree, must, and I use that word very advisedly but very readily, must be engaged with the culture if they ever hope to win some out of the culture to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a very, very important principle from the Word of God. And for you to understand that as the Word of God teaches it, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Christians, at least to some degree must be engaged with the culture if they ever hope to win some out of the culture to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, that's the principle. And here are the passages which prove that principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. The Apostle Paul spends the first 18 verses talking about this concept. He says to the Corinthians, If I preach the gospel, then I ought to be worthy of receiving my financial living from the gospel. In other words, if I am truly a man who works full-time in my ministry to other people, I ought, I deserve, and he even says that, I deserve to receive my financial well-being from the preaching of the gospel. I have the right to vocationally preach the message of truth. That's what he says in the first 18 verses of 1 Corinthians 9 in various ways. But then in verse 19 he says this, For though I am free from all men, in other words, he turns the corner and says, Though I deserve to receive my living from the gospel, if there is anyone who has difficulty with that, a problem with that, someone who says, I think, Paul, you're in it for the money. I think you're preaching this gospel from ill motives, and therefore I do not want to believe your message because I think you have other motives in hand other than the well-being, the eternal life being given by God through your preaching to others. So he says, well, if that's the case then, if someone thinks that that may be my motive, then even though I have the right 
to expect money to come my way for the preaching of the gospel, I won't take it. I won't take it. So he says, verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all. You know what he means? Even though I am free in the choice that I can make to either receive money for the sake of the gospel or to refuse money for the sake of the gospel, I'm free of all men. I have no obligation to take money from someone who believes that I may have an ill motive for the receiving of that money. So I'm free from that person. I am not forcing them to give me money even though they think I may have a wrong motive for receiving it. I can actually refuse it. And you know, of course, the Apostle Paul was a tent maker. He was the one who said, I don't ever want to make money an issue, ever. And so if someone thinks that I may be in it for the money, if they think that I'm gathering up funds for the Jerusalem church, which is very, very poor on my missionary journeys, then I know what I'll do. I'll refuse the idea of working for the sake of someone believing I have the motive, but I will work for the sake of my own money to support my own ministry so that I will not be a burden to anyone. And if God, through people, gives me money, I'll give it to the poor church in Jerusalem, and I'll work with my own hands. And that was a famous phrase of Paul, wasn't it? I'm working with my own hands. That's why he was so incredibly condemnatory in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 when there were busybodies in the church and he said there are people going from house to house, they're eating other people's bread, they're not working with their own hands, and he even gives a form of discipline there. He says if a person is not willing to work, he should not what? Eat. That's how strong Paul was. And then he said, I want you to look at my example. I worked with my own hands. I did my own work so that I wouldn't be a burden to any of you. So now, in 1 Corinthians 9, he's setting the stage for gospel ministers to be paid full-time, but if it causes a problem for someone, he says, I, for one, am not going to receive the money. I'm free from all men. But here's one thing I have made myself a slave to. I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Now he's talking about spiritual issues. Now he's talking about the gospel. He's not talking about money there. He's saying even though I'm free to either accept or reject money for the basis of what I do vocationally, I'm free from that. There's no obligation there on your part. But what I am a slave to is to all men that I come in contact with because what my slavery is there is a slavery to the gospel so that I can then preach the gospel to all men so that I may win more. That's incredible integrity. And then he says in verse 20, To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself made under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. What's he saying? What he's saying is, I became a Jew as to a Jew. Now, he was already a Jew by birth, but what he means by this is, in order for me to be effective in my gospel presentation to the Jews, I live as though I'm under the, the dictates of the law, even though I myself am not trying to live so as to be saved by keeping the law. That's what he's saying. Since you cannot do enough things to keep the law, the law of God, in order to be saved, Paul knows that. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, I have the opportunity to live like a Jewish person, and even though there are Jewish people who are attempting to keep the law so as to be saved, that's not me, but I will keep these laws because when they see me, they'll say to me, look, you're just like I am. You're coming into my culture. 
You see, for many people, they didn't even know Paul was Jewish. You remember when he was hauled before the court and he said, I'm a Roman citizen, and they went, ah, we almost killed this guy because we thought he was a Jew only. That's where he emphasized his Romanness. But when it was appropriate, he emphasized his Jewishness because he was a Jew by birth. And what he's teaching us in this particular text is to say, I am doing everything I can to engage my culture. If there are Jews out there to win to Jesus Christ, then I'm going to act like a Jew. Not try to follow the law so as to be saved. That's not the issue. The issue is I'm already converted to Jesus Christ, but if it means doing things that Jewish people do, I have no problem with that because it's all external to me. It's no big deal. Notice what he says, verse 21. To those who are without law, that's Gentiles, I live as though I'm without the law though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. In other words, the Gentiles are pagan people. They don't have the law of God. It wasn't given to them. So when I'm around them, I don't live as though I'm under the law. Why? So that I might win those who are without law. So whether I'm with Jews or whether I'm with Gentiles, I'm speaking their language. I'm doing their thing. He says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I may be by all means save some. And that's that very famous phrase in 1 Corinthians 9.22. I am everything to everybody, so that I might by all means save some. And then verse 23 nails it down. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I might become a fellow partaker of it. Now, this is a guy who understands the culture. He's not a retreatist. He's not a head-in-the-sand Christian. He's a guy who comes along and says, Look, if I need to try to influence the Jews, then I'm going to live like a Jew. If I want to try to influence the Gentiles, I'm going to live like a Gentile. This is, this is Paul. This is what he was all about. He's living out this principle that Christians, at least to some degree must be engaged with their culture if they ever hope to win some out of that culture to a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. I'm all things to all men so that I might by all means be used of God to save some. You say, well, give me some examples of that. What did Paul do practically? Well, look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. And some of you might be very shocked by this. You might be very, very surprised as to what Paul did, even to his body, as a result of trying to engage in the culture. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Almost like Paul, Jewish by birth, but a Roman citizen. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, that is Timothy, and he took him, and notice this, and circumcised him because of the Jews. You see that? Now, Paul be the first one to say, and he has said it explicitly in Romans and in Galatians, circumcision is nothing. It's nothing. In fact, all it is to Paul is a physical issue. It's just the the shaving away of a foreskin. That's all it is. 
It has no religious connotation to it. It's just a physical thing. Now, admittedly, when God instituted it, it was even for God the Father Himself a sign. It wasn't the issue itself. It was a sign that pointed, pointed to something else. And what did it point to? Well, according to Jeremiah, God was instituting that as a sign that what the real issue was needed was that you would have a circumcised heart that your heart would be open before God, that you would be saying that, God, you're the Lord of my life, and this is a sign that shows you I'm being obedient to you. If you ask me to do something physically, I will do it physically, because what you ask me to do, I'm going to be obedient to it. That's all it meant in the original, and that's all it means now. And that's why Paul says, circumcision is nothing, he says in Galatians 6. It's nothing. But, if a Jew has a problem with another person who is Jewish, like Timothy, because he had a Jewish parent. If I go into a situation, into a culture, in which the Jews would be unnecessarily offended, then what are we going to do, Timothy? This is going to happen to you. You're going to be circumcised. He took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. See, they would have some unnecessary offense, these Jewish people. And for Paul, it's no big deal. He's just saying, look, we can circumcise you because I know that the circumcision is not for the purpose of being saved. You're already saved. In fact, we know in Timothy's life that he was already converted to Christ because his mother and grandmother had already shared the gospel with him from the earliest days from the Scripture that made him wise unto salvation. So he's a believer. He's uncircumcised. He has a Jewish lineage. And Paul says, I want you to know this, circumcision is no issue, but it could be an unnecessarily, unnecessary stumbling block, and so that's no big deal, circumcising. In other words, practically speaking, he engaged the culture. He went to them. He didn't want to be unnecessarily offensive to them. Look at chapter 17 of the book of Acts. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had traveled through Apollopolis... And Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. What's the issue? The Apostle Paul as was his custom, verse 2, he went right into the synagogue of the Jews and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This is his strong evangelistic fervor. This is not an issue of the physical circumcision. This is an issue of Paul, as his custom, he went right into that synagogue, he went right into the culture, and he said, I'm proclaiming to you that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has been raised from the dead. So it's not just what Paul is doing around him with the culture as he's allowing the culture to influence him to do things even with regard to his own body. But it was another issue. I'm, I, I can do this with my body. I can do this with my life. I can do this with my customs. But one thing I'm doing it for is for the sake of sharing with you that Jesus Christ is Lord and that He's been raised from the dead. Now look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, 
His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So now he switches from the Jews going into the synagogue. Now he's looking at the Gentile issues. And he's saying, verse 17, So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So he's preaching the gospel not only in the synagogues, but out in the marketplace to any Jews who might be around or any God-fearing Greeks. That's those who looked at the Jews' God and said, I'm interested. And now, verse 18, he's engaging with the culture. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. And of course, you know the famous sermon on Mars Hill. And another item that's very interesting, he says in verse 23, For as I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And he used something in the culture. There was a, a statue or an inscription. And he began to share with them the gospel, bouncing off of a cultural idea, a cultural icon. There are even times when the Apostle Paul quotes secular philosophers or secular poets. What's the point? The point is, God, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, was engaging the culture, at least to some degree. And he was looking for ways in which he could deal with the culture by being unnecessarily in, in, in op not opposition to the idea, but he was also doing all that he could to engage the culture without offending them. And of course, when he talked about the resurrection, verse 32, they began to sneer. Others, however, said, we shall hear again concerning this. But notice verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Aha! God was so pleased to bring some to faith in Christ. Some believed. Paul is engaging the culture because he hopes to win some out of the culture to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what happens. Here's another thing that Paul did. Look at chapter 18, verse 18. Acts 18, 18. Paul having remained many days longer in this ministry endeavor, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. What haircut is that? That's a Nazarite vow. It's referred to in Numbers. There were Jews who had very, very strict observances when they would take a Nazarite vow. They wouldn't drink strong drink, they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, cut their hair in some cases, some cases they would shave their head continually. Here's Paul. He cut his hair, for he was keeping a vow. That's a, that's a Jewish ritual, that's a Jewish custom. What's he doing? He's trying to engage his culture. Look at chapter 21, verse 17. See, you start receiving the idea that what Paul is doing 
is he's not saying, I'm going to stand against my culture by not doing anything that the world does. No, he does some things, at least to some degree, so that he's not a burden to them because he wants to share the gospel with them. Verse 27, or excuse me, verse 17, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present, and there's going to be a discussion. And what happens in this discussion? Verse 23, Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, which obviously meant that these other men, including Paul, also engaged the culture. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Isn't that very interesting? Keeping the law. For salvation? No. For gospel preaching purposes? Yes. Yes. Engaging the culture. But concerning the Gentiles, verse 25, who have believed, we wrote having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. In other words, in the Acts Council of, of uh, Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, they said there were four things that we were going to tell the Gentiles who came into the church, that this is what you should not do, even from a Jewish perspective, because we don't want to make an offense. So don't do that. That will offend unnecessarily the Jewish brethren. Then Paul took them in, verse 26, and the next day, purifying himself along with them. That's another one. The time of purification. Went into the temple. That's another one. Giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. There's the issue of the offering of sacrifices. Well, this is amazing. What this is saying is that Paul wasn't going to be offensive when it wasn't necessary. He wanted to be engaging the culture, and he was. Look at chapter 25, verse 8. This is where Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Well, that's an amazing statement. Paul is not going to do anything to make a necessary, I mean an unnecessary offense to the issue of law keeping. It's just not going to be a problem for him. Now, it would be a problem if someone said, Paul, you have to keep the law, including circumcision, in order to be right with God, in order to be saved. Paul would have to say what? I can't do that because no amount of law keeping would allow me the opportunity to stand righteously before God. But when it wasn't an issue of salvation, but an issue of Paul living out his testimony before them, he had no problem. No problem at all. You know, this is really what Paul tells us in Titus, Titus chapter 3. This is exactly what he says to us. I read it to you last week. Remind them, that is, believers, to be subject to rulers to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Folks, that's engaging the culture. That's engaging the culture. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. He says in 
Verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. I don't want you to dispute about the law, but at some times the law is not going to be the issue. And if you can come alongside some Jewish person and the issue is just some physical circumcision of your body, it's not a problem. If it's shaving your head, it's not a problem. If it's the idea of going into a synagogue and preaching the gospel, it's not a problem. So Paul was living out the reality of what he's talking about. You know what he says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4? I want you to pray for leaders, pray for all men, pray for the king. It says that in 1 Peter as well. Love the brotherhood, fear the king. Do whatever you can to make sure that you are peaceable, that you are twink, tranquil, that you do all of the things that you do in a culture because you want to win them. You want to, you want to reach out to them. This was a very interesting article that I read this week from the Covenant Seminary publication that comes out regularly. It's from Jerome Bars, and he says this, Many Christians in our ungodly society look at personal separation as the issue. We insist that we must keep ourselves and our children set apart from personal relationships with unbelievers. We want to be pure, holy, separate from sinners, and we think the only way to do this is to keep ourselves away from them. We, we retreat into our churches and all the relationships and institutions associated with them so that the world will influence us in a minimal way. Then we think we will be secure and safe from contamination. But if we want to keep ourselves separate, then says Paul, we would have to leave the world altogether. What do we find to help us in our understanding of this subject when we turn to the Gospels? We do not have to look far before we discover that Jesus frequently received criticism from his righteous contemporaries. They judged him because he made himself a friend of sinners. Jesus answered these accusations by arguing that this was the very reason that he was sent into the world, that is, to be a friend of sinners. The commandments of God are not about personal separation from sinners. They are about being merciful and loving to sinners and at the same time living in personal holiness and purity. Jesus came into the world to seek and save that which was lost, that is, you and I. He calls us to do the same. We all need to ask ourselves some challenging questions. Who are our unbelieving friends? Who are the sinners whom we give ourselves to love? Who are the ungodly who welcome us gladly and enjoy being with us? There is no other way to be obedient to Jesus' command. Yet, the reality all too often is that along with fear and condemnation, separation and retreat characterize too many of us as believers. We, re we retire into the haven of the church for our own protection and for the protection of our children. This makes genuine outreach almost impossible. How can we have true communication with people about a gospel of love, self-sacrifice, and the Word made flesh if we distance ourselves from those who need to hear the message? A friend who is not yet a believer put it this way, The trouble with you Christians is that you wrap yourselves in a cocoon. All your close friends are other Christians. What about pagans like me? Who is going to reach me? That's our task. We've been commanded, called to engage the culture, at least to some degree. Now, is there a qualifier on that? 
certainly is. And we'll find out about that next time. Let's pray together. Father, there is every opportunity for us to acknowledge, to admit that we don't do enough, most of us, in the area of evangelism. Even the, the thought of engaging our culture is convicting. If we were to have one of our non-Christian friends or associates or acquaintances say to us, you're a Christian wrapped in a cocoon. When are you going to reach me? What would we say? How would we be able to live? How would we be able to influence him toward righteousness? Lord, we know that our challenge is to engage the culture, at least to some degree. But we must. We must live our lives and we must speak with our mouths a message that might be offensive and will be to some, but will be genuinely influential with others. And that by your grace. Lord, what is our strategy? How can we influence this culture for your honor? How can we engage ourselves with them so as not to be influenced by them, but influence them? Lord, we thank you that the Apostle Paul is such a wonderful model for us. They didn't think about saying no to this or that because he knew it wasn't a, an issue other than winning souls engaging with the people around him. And so we thank you for his example and for these scripture that show us that we must engage. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us the direction and the principles so that we would learn when not to engage, when to say no, when to retreat, when to back off. We pray that you would bring us back next time so that we would find out these principles that would give us a balance knowing that there's great tension in Christ with culture. We thank you for our time together. And may it spawn great discussion, great dialogue about how I win souls for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for not being more active and influential within our culture. Bring us to a place of readiness, both in desire and duty, to engage this culture so that we might win souls through your Son, in whose name we pray, amen.